0: Greyhound to Trap One, over. Trap One, go ahead Greyhound, over.
1: Welcome to the Trap One podcast, my name is Mark McManus, joining me today is Jason Miller um, who is a blogger who blogs about the target range of Doctor Who novels, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having me. No problem. Thanks for taking the time. So today we're going to talk about uh, Diamond Dogs, the 12th Doctor novel by Mike Tucker. Uh, First of all, uh, I always like to hear from, uh, we've got a new co-host, Is just how you got into Doctor Who, if you can remember the the first story that you saw or anything like that.
0: Sure. Um, As an American fan growing up in the New York City suburbs, uh, Doctor Who in the early 80s was a very Fringe part of the American Consciousness. When I was in elementary school at age 11, I had a couple of friends who happened to be watching the show, which was airing on PBS, our public TV station, locally on Long Island. And they were airing one episode 25 minutes a night at 7 p.m., which is exactly when my family always sat down to dinner. So one night I snuck away from the dinner table early, to watch a show my friends were telling me about, and I turned on part one of Time Flight. Which, <laughs> if you are looking for a story to introduce a fan to, uh, the equivalent for that in the new series would be a turkey of an episode. Um, which, of course, your mileage may vary on what a turkey is. But I watched about 45 seconds of Time Flight, and I stayed away for another week. <laughs> So my friends persuaded me to come back a week later, and I happened to turn on part two of Arc of Infinity, and I caught the last ten minutes of that. Now, the cliffhanger in Arc of Infinity part two is where the Doctor is disintegrated. I'm like, you can't do that. You can't disintegrate your main yeah. character. So I was hooked pretty much from that point on, and I watched every night at seven o'clock when I was able to. Um, so I caught most of the last two years of Peter Davison's reign. And this is spread out over two months of American broadcast time, watching an episode a night. Now, The Five Doctors came on pretty early in the run. So I actually got to learn about the entire history of the show from watching The Five Doctors. So I saw you know, three of The Five Doctors, plus Richard Herndahl, plus the Daleks, plus the Cybermen. So I then VCR-taped... Uh, The Five Doctors, and I watched it over and over and over again, and I got hooked. And then after Peter Davison regenerated, they recycled back, and they showed Tom Baker starting with Robot.
1: Fantastic.
0: So I've been a fan now for over 30 years. I started watching in November 1984, and I was an American fan, of course. uh, It's not always easy to get access to the show, PBS, PBS. Started dropping the show in the early 90s, so for a long time it was hard to come by on television. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the convention circuit kind of dried up um, in the 1990s. So the only thing keeping me alive as a Doctor Who fan in the 90s was the internet and the occasional convention. So I was a big poster on Rec Arts, Doctor Who, the old Usenet bulletin board in the mid-90s. And then I started my blog about seven or eight years ago. And uh, after all these years in America, I still have a foot in Doctor Who fandom, except now my competition is not fellow nerds. My competition is now 16 and 17-year-old girls. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very strange dynamic going to a convention today versus my first convention in 1985, that's for
1: sure. Yeah, it's, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? Um, I was talking about this with, with a mate last week, um, we're both kind of in our late 30s now, um, and when we were younger, and you know, he's um, he's a bit of a Doctor Who fan, but he's into kind of other kind of nerdly pursuits, like uh, you know, kind of role play and different things like that. Uh, about how we were born far too late, because um, yeah, when we were kind of teenagers and stuff, there were no girls that would go to anything like this. Yeah, it's uh, the the landscapes changed a lot. Another first couple of conventions that I went to didn't see any any females at all, uh, and now it's like fifty fifty. It's uh, it's great, yeah.
0: Yeah, my first convention, I managed to convince my father to take me to a convention in Manhattan in the summer of 85. And he was very reluctant to go, so we only went for a few hours in the afternoon. So I caught the first U.S. screening of Dalek Invasion of Earth*, And I hung out in the dealer's room and I bought about seven or eight novelizations. The Target novels, of course, being the highlight of my blog. So I sat there on a couch in the hotel lobby reading Uh, because there weren't too many events going on. I think the guest at that convention was Matthew Waterhouse, but I never got to see him because we uh, left early, had to catch a train back to the suburbs. Of course, conventions now are a much different vibe because um, there are more guests, there are more episodes to watch, there are more fans to talk to, and I no longer have my father trying to drag me away at the earliest possible
1: opportunity, (laughs) more importantly. That's great. Yeah, I was um, as I was saying before we started recording. I'd, I'd love to make it to one of the big American conventions one day. I'd love to get to uh, Long Island Who or Gallifrey, Chicago, TARDIS, something like that. They, uh, yeah, they look absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah, I attend Long Island Who every year. I make it to Galley whenever I can. That being three thousand miles away, we'd be thrilled to have you out there for sure.
1: Yeah. Ah, oh, cool. Thanks. I, I I went to the the fiftieth um, the in London the um that the official fiftieth. Uh, celebration that they had uh, went on the Saturday for that. That was pretty amazing seeing um, four of the doctors on stage together. Um, I mean, just about everybody was there. Um, just about every companion you could name. There was um, like Dick Mills was just kind of wandering around. Got to talk to him. It was it was fantastic. It's yeah. a great
0: validation after 30 years of fandom. When you and I, starting out when the show was kind of at a low ebb it's great to come back and
1: see it so big and so popular drawing so many fans it's amazing isn't it to think in the in the wilderness years that it would it would come back so big um i remember thinking that i was at the uh it was called the the doctor who symphonic spectacular i went to in glasgow and it was the welsh philharmonic orchestra i think um and the, it's a big called the hydro arena i think this great big arena in glasgow and absolutely packed with people um it really made me think yeah if, if you could have seen this in the 90s, you just wouldn't believe how, uh, how it's come back. It's fantastic. Yeah.
0: If I could go back in time and speak to myself, as I said, 13-year-old, collecting the novelizations and having nobody to talk to the show about, I think my 13-year-old self would just be totally blown
1: away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's a great time. Uh, and obviously recently, kind of big news, we've had uh, the casting of the first female Doctor with Geordie Whittaker. Yeah,
0: um, I was completely blown away by that. That is an idea that is long past time, and I'm very excited to see how it's going to work out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it just seems, it's a really exciting time at the moment. Obviously, it's going to be all change, a uh, new doctor. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it feels like I just can't wait to get it started. Although I'm really sad to be losing Stephen Moffat and Peter Capaldi. Um, it's just a really exciting time to see what, what comes next as well.
0: Peter Capaldi is far and away my favorite Doctor in the new series, and I'm just devastated that he's leaving. But at the same time, I'm excited for Jodie Whittaker to come in, and I, I'm curious to see what dynamic Chibnall is going to bring to the series, because obviously Moffat has his rhythm and he has his tropes and he has the same things that he does over and over again. He's got a very particular language for making the series,
1: Yeah. but
0: we don't really know what Chibnall is going to do.
1: Yeah, I think Stephen subtle. Moffat's made this point. Um, I've seen a couple of times himself that we've only seen sort of chibnall stories under the stewardship of, of Russell T Davies or Stephen Moffat. So uh, we haven't seen his own take and his own voice. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what uh, what comes out of that. Um, as we're recording this, um, it's the final day that the Doctor Who Experience is open in Cardiff. Uh, I've just seen some pictures on Twitter that Chris Jim there today, kind of meeting the fans and, and posing for photos and talking to people, uh, so uh, I think that's quite good that he's, um, you know, he's, he's kind of there and he's uh, accessible and, uh, and meeting people, so uh, quite Hopefully nice he doesn't again. take too
0: much advice from the fans, otherwise we're going to wind up with episodes that are nothing but homages to 1970s stories.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hopefully it's uh, yeah we're going to see some uh, some some new fresh stuff come along now. I hope so. That's it. So uh, we've got the uh, Diamond Dogs to discuss today. Uh, so this is from the the BBC range of books. There's uh, Diamond Dogs, The Shining Man, and Plague City, uh, which and that's the order I think that they're supposed to be read in. Uh, and they're set after the first three episodes of Series Ten. Um, So I think he's coming after Thin Ice. Uh, Did you, what do you think Series 10 was that? How did it rate for you? (sighs) Series 10 was,
0: this is probably a minority view, at least among the American fans that I've spoken to. I thought it was more valleys than peaks. I thought it was more downs than ups. The pilot, I thought, was a very derivative retread of a story that we've seen before. And it was really several episodes before I found myself excited as to uh, what the season was going to bring. The three-part arc arc in the middle, I think most of us were expecting that the monks were going to turn out to be the Mondassian Cybermen, and of course it didn't go in that direction at
1: all. No, yeah, it seemed like that was going to, yeah, lead to some kind of payoff later in the series, didn't it? The way way they just left with the, yeah, the kind of the tail between the legs, they just took off and... uh, it felt unresolved, didn't it? I, I, I it felt
0: very unresolved. I mean, mm-hmm. we're used to the Russell T. Davis era with you know, the villain from the two-parter in the middle coming back to the big two-parter at the end. Yeah. And Moffat just completely inverted that and gave us this three-part story in the middle where the villains just don't really get referenced again. And the big emotional story arc with Bill's mother, which was the resolution to the monk cycle... That also just vanishes, and we never hear about Bill's family again.
1: Yeah, yeah. That that's
0: said, true. the two-part season finale was just phenomenal. Um, and of course, the last ninety seconds of the season, for me as an old-school fan who loves the Hartnell years, I was just literally out of my chair for the last ninety seconds of the season.
1: Yeah, absolutely terrific. The, the whole—I think it's the for me my favorite season finale of the uh, of the kind of the new series where you have the the series, season finales like that. Absolutely brilliant, yeah. I've
0: never been more excited for a Christmas special either. I am just pumped for December 25th.
1: Yeah, yeah, twice upon a time. It's uh, it's, it's going to be a great one, I think. Um, and I was
0: David Bradley coming to Galley in February. I'll be able to hopefully meet him a couple of months after the episode.
1: Ah, oh, fantastic. I didn't realize he'd been announced for that. That's great.
0: Just got announced this week. Hopefully I'm not breaking any news, but I think they announced mm-hmm. it on the, the Twitter and Facebook feed. So that should be... Um, news at this point brilliant wow. exciting news too
1: yeah yeah he's uh, he's great i loved uh, an adventure in space and time uh he's, he's i think he's going to be superb in that one
0: yes and capaldi being an old school fan who um gave a little homage to the first doctor during his reveal um tv program
1: does he clutch his, his lapels didn't he yeah them- uh, He's, uh yeah there's uh, some trousers he wore were a bit kind of um there's some check trousers in series 9 as well didn't he
0: yeah you're right you're right i think he did that's right
1: yeah he's uh yeah like, like i say really sad to see him go um it's uh, it's a shame we didn't maybe get another series out of him and and what we haven't seen in the new series as well is is a doctor kind of uh spanning a couple of showrunners be interesting to see the difference um, like that you know if if David Tennant had stayed for a year uh, with Stephen Moffat or if Peter Capaldi had stayed into the uh, tribunal era Uh, well
0: one day we can go back and we can write the uh, missing adventure books with Capaldi thrust into a tribunal type story once we know what the tribunal type story is going to look like
1: that's it hopefully he'll do some work for Big Finish at some point as well uh, that
0: seems inevitable doesn't it everybody
1: seems to come to big finish yeah that's uh and, and being such a fan himself he's uh, you know he's, he's bound to be tempted isn't he let's uh,
0: hope so let's hope so
1: yeah, definitely fingers crossed uh so so Diamond dogs is a seri- is a, a story with uh, the doctor and bill uh there's no naddol in this one. Uh, what we find is that uh, the Doctor and Bill have travelled uh, to the future to a mining facility which is orbiting Saturn uh, and mines diamonds from the atmosphere of Saturn uh, to uh, basically to fund the human empire, isn't it? They, uh, they say there's no precious metals left on Earth, uh, so they're, uh, they're getting these diamonds from, uh, from the, the crushing atmosphere of Saturn to uh, to to mine that. Um, I don't know scientifically how well that uh, <laughs> uh, that stacks up. Do you?
0: What's interesting is about a week after I started reading the book, there was a news story from one of the science websites that I saw circulating around Facebook, and I think the story was being passed around more because of the headline than because of. The news, obviously, we don't have the technology to go out to the far planets and get diamonds. But the headline was, diamonds out of Uranus. <laughs> because <clears throat> they're either postulating or they recently discovered, I don't know which, that the atmosphere around Uranus is so heavy that it actively creates diamonds. Right. So either Mike Tucker knew that when he started writing this book a couple of years ago, or he just happened to make a dead-on accurate prediction.
1: Yeah, that is uh, that is interesting. Um, I, I'll find that story and put a link in the, in the show notes. Um, I know yeah. in the book they talk about they're going to expand the operation to Jupiter and Neptune. They, they don't mention Uranus in it, do they? But, uh,
0: I'm assuming uh, the editor, whether it's Justin Richards or whoever, would not allow the chapter title Diamonds Out of Uranus...
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe that got deleted during an early draft.
1: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, so there is um, there is in this book quite a few references to um, other Doctor Who stories, aren't they? They really, really try and um, ground it in the, the kind of the wider Doctor Who universe. Um, Not just uh, grounded, but anchored, bolted, and yeah. <laughs>
0: grounded to a fine powder. This may be the most reference heavy new series adventure that I've.
1: Ever read? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, the uh, I made a note of a few of them. On page one, they mention the Ogrons and the Federation, don't they, from Frontier in space? That's right. They talk about uh, Rom Dutt and Shara's Jack because uh, on the basis that the um, the the space station they're on, the Kolozanista Mining Facility Twenty Seven. Uh, is the, where they store all the diamonds uh, that they've extracted from Saturn, um, because they used to they used to ship them out regularly. But that's when they were um, targeted by the space pirates, um, which I suppose is another reference. Uh, so now they keep them all aboard the station until they've got absolutely tons of them, don't they? Uh, and that's what's saying they're worried about kind of big criminal operations like uh, like Ron Dutt and Shara's Jax.
0: And if we want to overanalyze
1: the reference,
0: number one, I would think that 80 percent of the readers of the book, are not going to recognize either name if you're dealing with a younger audience that doesn't watch the old DVDs as much as we do. But more importantly than that, Sharon's Jack, I, if you go to the caves of Zani and read a chapter in verse, he did not begin life as a diamond smuggler. He was a no. scientist who got very, very unlucky. Yeah. So while it was great seeing his name in print, I think the reference kind of falls apart if you take a couple of over-the-top fans like us and think about who yeah. Sharaz Jack really was,
1: yeah, he wasn't—he wasn't leaving the planet to go and uh, to uh, embark on any space pirates. Was he was—he he was pretty much uh, grounded where he was. Uh. He was
0: sitting on his uh, stockpile of Spectrox and his androids, lusting after Nicola Bryant. Yeah, <laughs> Wait, I think that's how I want to retire. But
1: yeah, I'm <laughs> not quite ready for that yet. Um, they also well, a bit I really like one of the references when they talk about the the Bayal Foundation and Professor Marinus, uh and K Nine. There's a little asterisk and then a footnote that says see see Doctor Who and the Invisible Enemy.
0: I love that
1: because it's a real Target I, book thing, isn't it? That it was great. Right.
0: What I've been doing on my blog over the last year is I've been reading the Target novelizations in publication order rather than in story order. So I've been following the evolution of the Target line. I'm up to about 1977 now. And in the early days of the Target line, they footnoted two or three times a book to earlier adventures. Asterisk, see Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. Yeah. Asterisk, see Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion. So this was uh, an intentional uh, shout-out to the Target line. I thought that was amazing.
1: It, yeah, really great. I loved that. Just a real uh, hit of nostalgia when I, when I saw that, yeah. So we
0: start off, not with a hint of nostalgia, but a little tickle of nostalgia. So in the plot to the book, you have the main female protagonist, Laura Palmer, which, by the way, is probably a Twin Peaks reference, but uh, uh, maybe it was a coincidence.
1: Yeah.
0: So she's she's a security officer, and she's asking to be placed on Saturn for her first assignment. Now, her commanding officer doesn't think this is a great idea because he sees the Calo Zarnista mine as a dead end. Laura, of course, just wants to have the view of Saturn and the rings and the diamond rains, So she wants to be there for the scenery more than for the career opportunity. So her commanding officer, who is a New York City Italian-American, now, if you think back to your old episode, The Chase, and you yeah. remember the part where the TARDIS lands on the Empire State Building? Yeah. The tour guy who had probably the worst affected New York, Italian, American accent in the history of EBC Productions. <laughs> I took that accent, and I read this colonel's voice in that accent from the uh, chase, and it just sounds bad. If I was any better of an actor, I would do a dramatic reading for you, but fortunately, <laughs> I'm going to spare your audience that. <laughs> So anyway, the the colonel is uh, reminiscing about his time spent on Saturn, and he talks about the reconstruction of the Titan refueling platform after the Great Fire of 5012. That was a pretty obvious reference, if you're an old school fan, to The Invisible Enemy, which was, I think, the 1977 or 1978 Tom Baker story. Yeah. It was their answer to Star Wars. Yeah. And most of it took place on the moon titan and of course the resolution to the story is the doctor causes a big fire to uh, destroy the episode's big bad yeah so that was a reference a subtle reference to the invisible enemy but then a few chapters later tucker kind of crosses the line from subtle into sledgehammer heavy
1: yeah because he finds that he meets somebody that knows professor marinus doesn't he not only that,
0: but the doctor on the Kalos Arnista station. Uh, her name is Joe Teski, I believe. Yeah. She is established to be the younger sister of Professor Marius's nurse that's *The right, Invisible yeah. Enemy*. Now, the <laughs> nurse didn't have a name on screen, but this may be, as far as I can tell, the first time in a new series, episode, or book, you have a character who is related to a. Peripheral, marginal, tertiary
1: character from a 40 year old TV story. Yeah. That's it. I thought that was, um, that was an interesting bit after that, wasn't it? Where the doctor considers whether to get back in touch with Professor Marinus and, and, and do that. And he makes a conscious decision to say, No, I, I'm not the doctor from the story that you've heard, um, and just, and just kind of not do all that. Um, he says, like, his previous incarnations might have done that but he just wants to kind of keep a low profile and uh, not uh, not reconnect with anybody.
0: I was disappointed in that for two reasons. Number one, as a big fan of the Capaldi doctor, maybe in Capaldi's first season he might have done that, but I think we're past the part of the Capaldi era where he views himself as a bad, grumpy man. Um, I think that Capaldi's doctor would have loved to have well, of course, Frederick Yeager has passed on, but he would have loved to have Professor Marius back on the show. Yeah. More importantly, I would rather have had a couple of chapters in the book where the Doctor actually flies out, meets up with Marius, shows him <laughs> K9 Mark IV or whatever we're up to, and then goes back to the plot two chapters later. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to read a couple of chapters of that, but I guess Mike Tucker didn't have the uh, space.
1: Yeah. that That is something that occurred to me when I, when I read the book, though, that... Um, I don't know. You obviously don't know how much access um, you know Mike Tucker had to uh, to the script or anything in Series Ten, but he was writing the Doctor, this Doctor, much less avuncular than he was played in Series Ten. He calls humans pudding brains about five or six times during the book, doesn't he? Um, I he's, yes. He's,
0: I lost track after the fifth or sixth.
1: Yeah, he's he's very spiky and a little bit kind of irritable uh, in the way that he was earlier in his incarnation. Um, so it, wasn't, it was like they weren't privy to the, the changes uh, or how, the, how it was going to be played in the most recent series. Uh, so yeah, it didn't, it, that felt a little bit jarring compared to the episodes that this, this is set between, I thought.
0: But so what I loved about the portrayal of the Doctor in this book is how he enters it. He enters the book by clandestinely materializing on Carlos Zornista because he wants to steal one single diamond yeah. In order to fund his project on Earth. Yeah. Which is a, just a hilarious bit of characterization.
1: Yeah, he, said the, he says for stealing, housekeeping. But he's only
0: stealing one diamond that'll never get noticed.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he says uh, it's for housekeeping, doesn't he? For, for toilet paper and such, yeah.
0: <laughs> right, so that Nardole can go out and buy him a bricks of toilet
1: paper. Yeah. <laughs> Which... Um, yeah, you'd think, um, you'd think his salary as a, as a professor at the university would um, would kind of keep him in sort of everyday stuff like that, um, and anything else would be in the TARDIS, but uh, obviously uh, him and Nadal have expensive taste in uh, in biscuits and things uh, that, to, to keep them going. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course, and of course buying all those Sonic screwdriver props that he keeps in the jar on his desk, those yeah. props cost money. <laughs> um, and also, because it's something that was picked up in, in a couple of episodes of series 10, uh, they mention it in, um, in Smile, about the Doctor stealing the TARDIS, and then in Thin Ice, um, when he steals the pies from the, the guy on the lake, on, uh, sorry, on, the, on the frozen Thames, um, he talks about being a thief and being quite adept at it, doesn't he? Um, that's right, that's right. And this is another kind of example, he's, he's breaking into the, uh, into the vault aboard the, uh, the space station just to take one diamond. Um, and it made me think, yeah, because not only stealing the TARDIS, but the Doctor's pilfered a lot of his costumes, hasn't he, over the years? He's uh, you're thinking about the, you know, the sort of the Third Doctor um, stole the clothes and the car from the hospital. The Eighth right. Doctor stole his costume as well from a hospital, uh, as did the Eleventh Doctor. Uh, so yeah, he just he just can't kind of help himself now and again, doesn't he?
0: That's right, that's right. Um, and of course, Capaldi, unless we forget, his doctor is friends with Robin Hood.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs>
0: so he's uh, stealing from the rich and giving to himself.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then they, they get involved in the plot in this one because Bill kind of thinks about it for a little while. And what she could do with one of the diamonds as well. She could um, you know, kind of move out from um, her adoptive mother and, and you know, kind of uh, – so she decides she's going to take a diamond as well. Which um, turns
0: out not to be the smartest thing she's ever done.
1: No. Uh, so, this, this trips an alarm, um, which, which alerts the, the security staff uh, that there are intruders in the vault. Uh, so, they're arrested. Uh, and the doctor, um, in, it, I thought it was quite, this was quite a nice scene. It was quite doctory. He gets hold of one of the guns from the, uh, uh, from the security team and turns it on Bill, um, which kind of throws them off guard. They, they don't know how to react to it. Uh, So yeah, I thought that was a nice little scene.
0: And remembering that this is still early on in Bill's tenure, so she's not even fully sure that she trusts the Doctor yet. So we get a little bit of doubt in her mind as to exactly what he's trying to do.
1: Yeah. I felt like the Doctor in this, uh, and and the other characters kind of point to it quite a bit, about how he likes to show off as well. Um, There's kind of a bit of arrogance about him, uh, which again felt like, throwback to to earlier in the Incarnation.
0: And he gives a very long, rattled off explanation as to why he's holding the gun on Bill rather than on the security captain. It's because the security bots on the base have very limited programming. And by pulling the gun on Bill, who they're trying to arrest, it sort of short-circuits their programming and allows him to escape so the way Capaldi rattles all this out in almost stream of consciousness, I would love to hear Capaldi record that. I think he'd do a great job with the lines.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and they, they, these are kind of floating spheres, aren't they? Like the um, like the Monopticons um, in Fort of Doomsday*, or uh, you know, kind of uh, similar technology to that, aren't they? They're, uh, or *Planet of Evil* as well. They have those um, probes that they send out from the ship that float along.
0: Right, the oculoid trackers. And, of Did course, it. later on in the book, not to jump the gun, but the doctor reprograms those security spheres in order to uh, solve a plot twist.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're, uh, they're like Chekhov's spheres, aren't they, that uh, they're introduced early on and then uh, they're, they're key later on. And because um, there is a reference as well to, I think, the, um, well, uh, the cancri from Cygnus A or that kind of area, which is mentioned in Planet of Evil as well. Um, so I guess the technology would be similar to that because it's, you know, presumably that's set around the same sort of time. You, the human empire are spreading out from that.
0: So the category are pretty important to this book because with the humans trying to plant a base in the skies over Saturn and mine diamonds from a very high-pressure atmosphere, The Cancria are established as having arrived on Earth not to conquer, but to offer their help because they are experts in dealing with high-pressure environments. So they give the humans two things. They give the humans the gravity technology to keep the base floating in the sky without being sucked down to the planet and ground to a singularity. And they also create mining suits which allow humans to descend in a sort of diving bell and snatch the falling diamonds out of the sky. And that, of course, ends up being important because if you're talking about technology in the Doctor Who story, you can bet at some point in the book that the gravity inverters are going to fail yeah. and that the costume, the enormous uh, mining outfit, is going to be appropriated by somebody for whom it is not intended.
1: Yeah and this
0: uh, at the end we also find out that cank we have a little more of an ulterior motive than we knew about at the beginning of the book
1: yeah and the um uh, and the suits the high pressure suits they are the diamond dogs the eponymous diamond dogs of the title um that's what the the humans have kind of dubbed them um uh, they're the the diamond dogs when they get in these suits and they've all customized them and things as well haven't they yeah which uh, the, the there's one cankery aboard the station, isn't he called Jenlos, um, who's uh, an engineer, uh, which he doesn't really like the fact that they've uh, they've customized them all, um, and right. the the cankery are getting a certain proportion of the diamonds as well, um, which because uh, it touches on that it's controversial that uh, that the cankery are getting paid. Um, and nobody, uh, and they haven't revealed to the public how much that they give to the cancri, Uh, but that without them they wouldn't be able to mine them anyway. Um, and they are the lifeblood of the of the kind of the human empire at this point. Um, then
0: we also find out later on what the Cancri are doing.
1: Yeah, with the diamonds, the perhaps
0: they don't have the most altruistic motive.
1: No, the at that point it reminded me a little bit of the the kind of what we're going through in the UK at the moment with the EU. Um, in that uh you know there are obviously are people who have uh, voted to leave the EU and want to leave the EU and begrudge the um the money that the UK pays to them. Um but in fact is is massively helping our economy and uh you know looks like it's gonna be pretty disastrous when we leave and I wondered if that was um that was in some way a little analogy for that when they were talking about uh the uh you know the public didn't like that they were paying the cankery but they were absolutely essential to the uh to the economy and uh and driving the human empire forward
0: whereas here in the states i am preoccupied with the daily constitutional
1: crisis that is the trump administration so that reference (laughs) kind of went over my head because i have
0: every day there's a new disaster that i have to worry about in the news here
1: yeah um yeah we we get a lot of coverage of that as well it's uh it's, my condolences. It's, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing on, on both sides, I think, at the moment, the, uh, the, what people have voted for. Yeah.
0: As a native New Yorker, I've been watching coverage of him my whole life. I actually lived in one of his father's buildings about 15 years ago, very poorly run. I yeah. just can't believe I've gone from that to this, but yeah. I digress.
1: To being in a country poorly run by his son, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, and by the Russians, but uh, that's yeah. a story for another
1: day. Definitely, that's it. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, the the doctor and Bill are under arrest for their respective uh, diamond thefts. Um, but then an emergency overcomes them because one of the miners, Baines, uh, has run into difficulty on the surface of Saturn. Um, the uh, the medical uh, person you mentioned before, Joe Tesk, uh, has these life signs are a bit erratic. And then he's talking about somebody on the outside of the diving bell trying to get in,
0: which is a very Stephen Moffat era image. If you think about it, an episode like Listen,
1: yeah, you have
0: somebody in an isolated environment locked in a bell where nobody can possibly be outside, and then somebody knocks.
1: Yeah, and and somewhat like Midnight as well. That um, and again a kind of a diamond the uh, sort of themed episode, isn't there? There's somebody outside. There's something outside the bus. Um, we in,
0: should, we not... Talk for a second about Mike Tucker because he got his start on the classic series as a special effects guy. Yeah. So his books, or many of his books, have these amazingly visual setups that you would love to see on television. So Midnight, of course, it's at that, Midnight is a base under siege story set on a bus, but you have these enormous panorama visuals of what's going on on the planet outside.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you would love to see an actual mock-up of diamonds falling in the skies over Saturn, set off against the rings. So I'm sure Tucker is working from this visual idea and then building the story around it.
1: Yeah, there's um, there's one of the because uh, he's he's written for Big Finish and he's written for the New Adventures and all sorts of stuff, hasn't he? There's uh, there's what I can't remember which one it is. Was one of the Big Finish ones where I think he designed and built the monster for it as well so that the cast right. uh, could could get an idea of what it was they were facing and the, the pictures are sort of in the sleeve notes. Um, and
0: there, was a, there was an earlier book, uh, an earlier new series adventure called Snowglobe 7, which I read and reviewed for a magazine many years ago. I've forgotten which doctor it is. I can look that up on Wikipedia, I suppose. But the larger point is it was an, another very visual story where you have a planet with different atmospheric zones and the TARDIS lands in the middle of winter. So Tucker definitely has the visuals in mind when yeah. he writes. It's fun to think about what all this looks like as you're reading the words on the page.
1: Yeah, he's. Um, I, I met him at the first convention I ever went to. It was in about, I think it was 1996, um, and he was there with Sophie Aldred because they'd just writ, written the book Ace together.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: Um, so yeah, that was the first um, the first kind of venue. But yeah, really interesting to to hear him. Uh, you know, talk about uh, his work on on the classic series, and and he's worked on the new series as well, hasn't he? When when they need models and uh, and bits and pieces like the uh, some of the scenes from Day of the Doctor, um, where it's set on Gallifrey at the start, and the the TARDIS kind of smashes through the wall into the Daleks and things like that. Uh, yes. he's responsible for those kind of scenes, isn't he? Yeah, been the
0: show for about thirty years in one capacity after another. One of those unsung behind the scenes heroes.
1: Yeah, yeah, really good. And uh, EA seems to uh, get a lot of commissions for these books as well, doesn't he? Um, Was it... uh, I think in the the last run of these there was the one... The name's on the tip of my tongue. It was one where it was kind of... I think it was giant insects, wasn't it? Um, That's the Crawling Terror. That's it, yeah. Again, very kind of visual, creepy uh, creepy episode, that one. Uh, Story, rather.
0: That was another... Capaldi book, although I confess that I have not read that one. I know the audio book was read by Madame Bastrop.
1: Ah, right. Yeah. He's, um, yeah, so he does seem to be one that the um, they'll keep commissioning. He's, uh, he's obviously got uh, plenty of ideas, and uh, they keep coming back to him.
0: Oh, well, you know, he turns out a very reliable, action-packed book. He keeps the pages moving. So he's just the kind of guy that you want when you need a book on short notice.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, um, just thinking there, the, the, the cover for this one um, has got the, the TARDIS being hoisted by a crane, uh, which obviously is a scene that, we're, we're, that we'll get to. Um, reminded me of the, in the pilot, uh, when Bill is asking how the TARDIS got into the doctor's study, he says, oh, it was, the, we took the wall out and a crane lifted it in. Um, yeah, just kind of, just kind of reminded me of that. It's like that that idea kind of made real, isn't it? Hmm. See, when I
0: heard the book was going to be called Diamond Dogs, I was expecting a David Bowie-style cover, but I guess we didn't get
1: that. No. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a title that doesn't really give much away, isn't it? And, uh, and it's not even a term they use that much in the book to describe the suits.
0: I'm sure it was there more as a David Bowie shout-out than anything else, because... There's one Diamond Dog that we meet, and his character's name is Roger Baines. But he disappears, obviously. There's a knocking on the outside of the diving bell. And then he disappears from most of the rest of the book. And this is where we come to what is probably the second big influence on Diamond Dogs. If the first is the invisible enemy, where you have a character who's related to a character from the original story... And we have a whole chapter devoted to the Doctor reminiscing about Professor Marius and Canine. A lot of this book, beat for beat, reminded me heavily of the early Third Doctor story, "The Ambassadors of Death." I don't know if you got the same vibe that I did.
1: No, that didn't occur to me. But um, yeah, I guess the uh, in that one, the Doctor goes up in the the recovery Recovery Seven. Is that right? Um, so
0: yeah, what happens is you have the you have a mission to Mars. And the mission disappears. So they send up the Recovery 7 rocket. And the astronaut hooks up with the original capsule. And he opens the door to enter the original capsule. And, of course, the camera zooms in on his surprised face. Something is there that is not supposed to be there. His capsule then returns to Earth. And after a lot of back and forth and chases and escapes... The doctor and his scientist friends open the capsule, and it's empty. And then three astronauts are recovered, or what they think are the three missing astronauts. But it's not the three missing astronauts; it's three aliens wearing the astronauts' suits. Yeah. I apologize for having trouble pronouncing the word astronauts today, but try uh, <laughs> that again: astronauts. So. Um. When they discover the astronauts, it turns out that the astronauts have become dependent on radiation because they're no longer the astronauts, they are aliens in astronaut spacesuits who are dependent on radiation in order to survive. Which brings us to this story. So, what we think is Roger Baines comes out of the diving bell after it's retrieved back to Carlos Arnista, but Baines is unable to communicate. He's locked himself into his pressure suit. Yeah. And it turns out that he doesn't need less gravity pressure in the suit. He needs more gravity pressure in the suit. So it turns out, about halfway through the book, we learn that this is not, in fact, Roger Baines after all. It's an alien who's taken Baines out of the suit and put itself into the suit. And he communicates with the humans and claims asylum, saying that he is the victim of an interplanetary war. And there are more of him waiting below who need to enter the station.
1: That's it, yeah. The aliens called the, the Ba el Krat. Um it's, so yeah in fact yeah like the, the uh the, the diving bell comes up empty like you say like the um like the rocket. And then the doctor has the TARDIS lowered um using the the, the diving rig down to the Saturn's surface and then pull back up uh, once he's recovered the um Bait what well, he thinks is bane's in the uh, in the pressure suit.
0: Only it isn't bane.
1: Yeah, that's it. And then um, so they kind of uh, they they take take the humans take him to. Well, he kind of gets the humans on side, doesn't he, saying that we're refugees or you know kind of seeking their uh, asylum. Um, but then his suit is sabotaged by um, by a party unknown. Uh, And the Doctor has to work very quickly to save the creature in the suit. Uh, He kind of makes, he kind of uh, cannibalises different technology, doesn't he, and uh, uh, and lashes it back together Um, on very,
0: very short notice against the countdown clock.
1: Yeah, um, and it's yeah, it's quite a nice Doctory scene, that isn't it? With with Bill helping him, and uh, the crew don't believe he can do it, uh, and he kind of does it just in time. Yeah.
0: And, of course, the crew is all, stay out of that room, it's going to explode, it's going to decompress, and the doctor, of course, manages to save the day, as he does. Yeah. Um, As with any good book, it turns out there is not just one saboteur trying to muck things up. It turns out that we have two saboteurs aboard Carlos Arnita.
1: That's because the the communications equipment is sabotaged as well, Um, but in a much more... Um, haphazard clumsy way than the, than the suit was so I think it's Bill actually comes to the realisation first doesn't she that it's not the same person because the the sabotage to the pressure suit was quite kind of fine work whereas um, basically it's just kind of like throwing a spanner into the works of the communication um, And Diamond Dogs is a base under siege
0: story which is another massive shout out to the classic series where it seems you had a base under siege story twice a year but you're on an enclosed base where it's hard to get in or out, and it seems that almost everybody in the book has a dual role to play. So there are lots of characters with ulterior motives.
1: Yeah, um, because we've got, these, uh, we've got these two characters aboard um, who are called Rint and... Uh, Nettleman. Nettleman and Rint, who, uh, so the company that owned the, 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 the rig... These are senior executives who've come to oversee things uh, and make sure that they're maximising the profit. Um, which I thought again a bit, a little bit of a, a theme we saw in series ten was capitalism, wasn't it? Especially in in Oxygen and Thin Ice. Um, so it seemed like it was uh, you know kind of in keeping with the stories around it uh, in that sense. The I mean the crew are pretty uh, they're pretty kind of decent, hardworking people, and they they care about. They care more about the the miners and the, and the crew members, but Nettleman and Rince are far more concerned about the diamonds than uh, than than the loss of Baines.
0: Right. The commander on the base is named Jorgen Dolitsky which is one of those classic Doctor Who silly space names. Yeah. <laughs> but he is a working class hero type. Yeah. And when Baines is lost in the diving bell, in order to retrieve the dive bell. Delisky makes the decision to jettison the diamonds in order to make it easier to pull up, and yeah. of course, that's when you start to sense the two company executives are not good guys because they are more concerned about the diamonds than about the soul on board.
1: Mm. Yeah, so they um, so they're kind of around um, and just kind of getting in the way a bit, aren't they? The the rest of the crew come to trust the doctor quite quickly. Um, because he's obviously bailed them out a couple of times by this point he's he's saved Baines uh, or what well, they thought was Baines and then saved the bat El Krat in the in Baines's suit which could have done a lot of damage if uh, if it had decompressed there um, so you
0: have let's is the base commander he comes to trust the doctor you have Laura Palmer the security captain and then you have dr Joe test or Tesky.
1: yeah
0: Every time I saw her name, Joe, J O, oh, I thought Joe Grant. So that threw me off a little
1: bit. Yeah. Um, but not
0: the same. Not the same Joe. Not the same Joe.
1: No, no. Uh, yeah, it's uh, she, she's she's the one that's got the link, isn't she? To the they say the nurse in the Invisible Enemy. Um, right,
0: she's the uh, younger sister of that nurse.
1: So then the battle Krat, uh Once the doctors saved the guy in in Baines's suit. He, he traps the rest of the crew, doesn't he, and takes control of the sort of hangar bay um, and sends the, uh, the diving bell back down, fills it with, with some more suits um, and brings more bat krat aboard um, in, the, in the suits. And this is where the
0: Doctor and Dolitsky, the base commander, have an interesting choice because when the one bat is below... Dolitsky has the option of severing the connection to the diving bell and letting it plunge all the way down to the surface of Saturn and being free of the bot elkrat forever.
1: Yeah.
0: Memory serves me right. But the doctor persuades him to let the bot go on with his mission and bring the other suits back and allow more bot elkrat onto the station. So this is a book that could have ended about two thirds of the way yeah. through. <laughs> they sacrifice the one but the doctor of course says no, no. Let's see where he's going with this. Let's
1: see where he's going with this. Yeah, yeah, because they haven't actually posed a threat. They've told them that their ship crashed into the into on, onto the surface of Saturn, um, uh, and and that they're basically seeking asylum from a war. So uh, as the doctor does, he, he gives them the benefit of the doubt, doesn't he? And uh, and wants to help them. Um, but the doctor's not quite buying the story about the ship crashing. So he takes the TARDIS, uh, and he takes Laura Palmer with him to go and look for the ship. I think he finds it using the TARDIS scanners initially, doesn't he? Is that right?
0: Right, and he leaves Bill on board because he wants Bill to track down the second saboteur.
1: Yeah, uh, he gives um, her a tracking device, doesn't he? Which I like this description that it looks like a child's toy with a couple of Smarties stuck onto it. <laughs> Which is a nice description of the kind of technology that, uh, especially in the classic series, that the Doctor would produce, um, you know, when he was trying to track uh, some kind of time anomaly or something like that.
0: Uh, thinking back, of course, to the time monster where the third Doctor puts together a uh, some sort of primitive time device out of a coffee pot and yeah. a wine and a tuning for and all sorts of odds and ends.
1: Yeah, it's got cutlery and all sorts, doesn't it? It's, uh, yeah, kind of hanging off it. Um, so, so more
0: importantly, the doctor wants Laura Palmer to actually hang out in the rings of Saturn and go on a little spacewalk so she can satisfy her um, fascination with the rings. A, the doctor admits that he has the same fascination himself.
1: Yeah, so they, they find that the ship is, um, is parked in the rings of Saturn. Um, uh, you and mean
0: the biocrat lied? You mean it didn't actually crash on the surface?
1: Yeah, this is it. They, uh, it turns out they're not, uh, they're not all they seemed. <laughs> Shocker! So i have actually got a reading uh, here from uh, Denise Sutton, who is uh, a podcast regular, um, so long-term listeners will, will recognise her voice. Uh, and this is uh, the Doctor and Laura's trip in the TARDIS.
2: Laura had watched in disbelief as the Doctor emerged from the bowels of his spacecraft with a couple of bright orange spacesuits bundled up in his arms. "'You've got to be kidding. We can't go out there in those.' "'Why not?' The doctor had dumped the suits on the floor of the console room and, discarding his jacket, started to struggle into one of them. "'It's Saturn. We'll need gravity inverters.' "'We've got them.' The doctor pointed at a small silver device on the neck of his suit. Laura stared at him as if he was mad. "'That? A gravity inverter?' The doctor grinned. "'Don't tell the cankery.' Sincerely hoping that she had not opted to spend the last few moments of her life with a total madman, Laura had discarded her uniform jacket and belt and started to pull on the spacesuit that the Doctor offered her. Now she was standing in front of the strange old-fashioned doors as the Doctor made the final navigational adjustments to bring his ship alongside the alien wreck. The doctor had deemed that attempting a landing inside the vessel came with too high a risk of shifting it from its precarious orbit or somehow alerting the Bar El-Krat. "Besides," he had said with a grin, "I thought that you might appreciate taking the scenic route." There was a slight jolt as the ship came to a standstill, and Laura was aware of a faint buzzing in her earpiece as the doctor engaged the TARDIS force field. He hurried over from the console. "Ready," he asked looking for all the world like a small boy about to show off his latest toy. Laura took a deep breath, ready. The doctor clicked his fingers and the door swung open, and Laura stepped out onto the rings of Saturn. It was like every dream that Laura had ever had. No, she corrected herself. It was better than every dream she had ever had. Beneath her feet, the rings stretched off like a vast glittering highway, billions upon billions of tons of rock and ice slowly tumbling in an impossible ballet. Unable to quite believe that it was really happening, Laura took a step forward. The sparkling energies of the force field that burst around her boots with every footfall making the experience even more surreal. Aware that she was grinning like an idiot, Laura turned back towards the doctor. He was just standing there, leaning casually against the side of the TARDIS, watching her. Laura couldn't help herself. She doubled over with laughter. It was so absurd. A man and his stupid blue box just hanging there against the huge boiling mass of the gas giant. She could feel tears rolling down her cheeks.
1: So yeah, at the end of this scene the, the doctor and Laura found the Bat El ship, um which is made of bone, it's like it's like the hollowed out corpse of a of some kind of creature, which is another kind of great Mike took a visual thing, isn't it?
0: That's definitely Mike Tucker at work. This is almost a body horror image because you wonder if that bone spaceship was some living creature who got harvested by the El Pratt. And if you go back to some of Tucker's earlier books, he does play with that image from time to time.
1: Yeah, the, the Cyberman story that he does, um, it's, uh, I can't think of the name of it, but it's, um, it, it's one of the ones that delves into the early Cybermen and, and conversion and... Um, I can't think what, it, what it's called. There were two.
0: Illegal Alien was the first one.
1: Yeah, there's, uh, Illegal Alien I think is the one I'm thinking of. Um, right, a, it was
0: the seventh Doctor Cyberman story set I think during World War II, memory serves me right.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, but then and, he
0: also had written a book called Primetime for the BBC books where the aliens, uh, the big bad, were called flesh smiths who would do horrible things to human flesh. Right. Which and is continuing on with the body horror
1: theme. Yeah, I must have so read have that, but I don't remember that spacecraft
0: made of bone, which is meant to be a revulsive image, and it sure was for me.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so the uh, the doctor and Laura board it, um, and uh, they sort of speculate about how the battle crap fly it, um, and it's, it's some great imagery that they sort of um, they're a kind of a flowing liquid sort of creature. Um, that flow in and out of the um, the controls of the ship, and that's how it's piloted. Um, I thought that's totally unlike really any other aliens we've, we've seen or read about in Doctor Who in the past. Um, it's something that would be interesting to see that realized, uh, had it been a TV story. Yeah, that would have been
0: unfilmable in the 70s, which is where Tucker's soul appears to be. But yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of new series visuals, that would be a lot of fun to look at, I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. They, uh, I'm not going
0: to say the ba are the most inventive alien species in terms of their motives. They're kind of derivative. Yeah. But they certainly have a look unlike anything we've ever seen before.
1: Yeah. And again, there's, there's some more references, isn't there? Because he, uh, from the 70s, he talks about the Zygons and Axos. as other examples of organic technology right. that he's, uh, he's come across in the past.
0: And I believe he mentions the crotons, too, because how can you have a story with an organically grown ship without mentioning the crotons?
1: Yeah. Uh, and he talks about the TARDIS having been grown from a, a coral outcrop as well, doesn't he? Which I right. think is, I think I remember reading. There's a deleted scene from. Um, is it Doomsday? Is that the the last episode of series two? It's Doomsday, isn't it? Um, uh, right. It was
0: Army of Ghosts slash Doomsday.
1: Yeah, and when the Doctor. No, no, sorry, I'm thinking of um I'm thinking of the uh the one where the the doctor that rose goes off with the handy doctor uh the
0: um oh stolen earth slash journey's
1: hand right that's the one I believe there was a deleted scene where the 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 real doctor was gonna break off a chunk of the TARDIS interior and give it to Rose and the human doctor. To grow their own TARDIS, but it got cut, or it, it was never filmed, or something. Um, and that kind of reminded me of that—that that idea that TARDIS is a grown and it's like a, you know, a kind of organic coral thing that's uh, that they start off as. Ha! Huh, I had uh, managed to miss that. I have to look that up. I think, unless I've dreamt that or something, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere that there was uh, there was some kind of deleted scene or or an early draft of the script that that had that in it. Uh, um, but then they make another grisly discovery uh, aboard the the ship, um, and it's a
0: pile of bones,
1: yeah, which the doctor realizes are cankery bones. Uh, He's
0: originally afraid that it's the long missing veins, the diamond dog, but no, it is not. It is a pile of cankery bones,
1: yeah, so the they realize that the war that the Ba el Krat are claiming to be to to have fled is against the cancrey. Uh, so they hurry back to the TARDIS, um, and when they – I think it's on the scanner, isn't it? They look at the um, the station, um, and it's in difficulty. The, the gravity inverters are uh, uh, struggling, and it's getting sucked towards Saturn itself.
0: Which was an interesting jump cut, because in that chapter, in that chapter we're following Bill as she's wandering the station, trying to find the second saboteur using her cobbled-together tracker device, and she and Dr. Teske, um, I believe they come to the realization that someone on the ship is up to no good, Yeah. They, but then we leave them not in a moment of overt jeopardy, so as that scene cuts away, we have no idea that the ship is, that the base, I should say, is, is in any danger.
1: No. They, then the
0: doctor enters the TARDIS, turns on the scanner screen, and we see the thing on fire starting to... Sink down into the atmosphere of Saturn. So it's an unexpected cliffhanger.
1: Yeah, it really is because I think um, uh, Bill has just found out that Rintz, who's one of the executives, had the uh, had a communications device hidden in his quarters um, because they they detected some kind of transmission. And when they go and find a tool to try and it's you know behind a panel or something, isn't it, to try and break in? that's when they find out that Jen Loz is the person that um, sabotaged the, uh, the pressure suit that had the Bat Krat in it because they find the missing component in his locker. So she but, uh, very quickly uncovers both saboteurs. Uh, and at this head.
0: point of the story, Jen Loz is responsible for the safety of the five, now five Bat Krat who are being kept in the pressure chamber.
1: Yeah, uh, and we find out that that is why the rig is now um, kind of critically damaged because he tried to blow them up. Um, and in killing two of the Battlekrat, the uh, the pressure suits uh, exploded and, uh, and and did a lot of damage to the station, didn't they? Right. So at this point, they, the 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 doctor takes TARDIS back to the station, um, and uh, as you referred to earlier, uses the uh, they're called the Flying Squad, aren't they? The uh, the security bots to. Uh, because they need something that can carry the information between the four gravity inverters very quickly. So just in the nick of time, he manages to reprogram them uh, and send them to the gravity inverters to, to restore the orbit, doesn't he?
0: Uh, for me, that was an interesting cheat because this book is written in 2016-2017 then it's set in the year 5000, but The soul of the story is the 1970s. So this base is written the way we would have made an oil rig in the 1970s where there is no wireless communication. Yeah. It should have been a simple matter to send a wireless signal to the gravity inverters. But in the book, even though we're thousands of years in our future, that technology doesn't exist. So the doctor has to have a sort of analog solution and that means he has to reprogram the security bots and have them physically travel across the ship to the gravity inverters to do a wake-up. Yeah, I'm not hadn't... sure if that's a plot hole or if that's uh, a reflection of the fact that when this book was emotionally written in the 1970s, right around Ambassadors of Death and Invisible Enemy, that Wi-Fi technology didn't exist.
1: Yeah, no, that hadn't occurred to me, but that's uh, yeah, that's true. Um, it, yeah, that it, it, they have to be physically connected is is an odd, uh, an odd sort of throwback, isn't it? Right, like well, then Star Wars too, where you need R
0: two D two to plug into the computer and talk to it. Obviously, nowadays yeah. that sort of plug in is not physically necessary. But in yeah. this book, even though we're in the year five thousand, it is necessary.
1: Yeah, we uh, something must happen to the to the Wi Fi in the intervening centuries that. Uh, <laughs>
0: Or maybe Mike Tucker is old-fashioned and doesn't even have a cell phone.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so once, once the um, well, I think uh, first of all, the doctor has to convince Gen Loz, doesn't he, to uh, that although he wanted to kill the Battle Crap because of the war, that he doesn't want to be a murderer and, and kill all the humans aboard. So he he enlists the help of Gen Laws, restores the the balance. But then the battle crack kill him, don't they? So they're uh, uh, in revenge for the two that uh, that he blew up. earlier And he on. gets
0: to die a sort of heroic death after being sort of a cipher for the first half of the book, and then you
1: learn he's sort of a double agent. He then sort of dies heroically. So that's yeah. a nice little character arc for Gen Laws, and, and quite horrifically, that he's not just shot or anything. He. He's—it's um, a bit like the mummies in the pyramids of Mars, isn't he? They—they're in the suits. Just—you're right. They just stand there. Uh, they just walk towards each other with him in the middle and, and crush him. Yeah. But in the 1970s, Patty Russell
0: was not going to show gouts of blood when the poacher is crushed by no. the mummies. <laughs> Here, Mike Tucker has a little more fun, I think, describing the gouts of blood and ooze that are uh, popping out of poor little gem laws.
1: Definitely, yeah. It's—it's uh, it, it's a bit more visceral, isn't it? Um, and then he's could even refer as they carry on working these cops. He's just there and everyone's trying to avoid looking at it or mentioning it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, right. that's pretty grim. Um, and then at
0: the same time, you get the sort of Scooby-Doo type denouement where all the characters are standing around narrating the crisis to each other. It turns out that Rince is also trader on a much smaller scale. He had uncovered that his superior, Nettleman, was a crook that he was embezzling the company, and he was setting Rince up to be the fall guy. Yeah. So Rince makes a deal with space pirates. Maybe the space pirates from the Patrick Trouton story, probably not, but any anytime I hear the word space pirates with the phrase space pirates, that's what my mind flashes back to.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So Rince has made a deal with space pirates to... I believe, smuggle a whole uh, shipment of diamonds off. So there's a space pirate ship out there, and Rince is trying to, rather than be set up as the fall guy, he turns himself into a criminal to escape with enough diamonds to be able to live off-world Yeah. The rest of his life. And all this is going on, all this is being discussed on the control deck at the same time as you have the crisis with the biocrat and with general is getting squished.
1: Yeah, um, so at at, um, at this point, they uh, and because we've seen the communications, but it's all been in code names, hasn't it? it's Ring Bearer and Raptor, where Ring Bearer is whoever's been on board uh, the Colos Arnista, uh, and Raptor is somebody waiting out in space. So we now find out that um, Ring Bearer is Rint, uh, and the Raptors are the space pirates. So they make him contact the space pirates again. Um, because uh, well the the have left haven't they? They've got their ship, they've left uh, and taken the doctor with them as a hostage. Their plan then being to destroy the the space station behind them. Um, right. But the uh, the tracking device that Bill used earlier uh, they've set as a homing beacon um, and told, and they and then Rince tells the space pirates to to home in on that and that's where the shipment of diamonds will be that they can. Uh, that they can easily, they think they're easily going to take it from a, a human transport, but it is actually the battle El uh bone ship.
0: And I think there's a nice little moment where Bill goes to hug the doctor goodbye, and she's using that to sort of surreptitiously drop the beacon, yeah, down in front of his pressure suit.
1: That's it. Um, which ties into the doctor's idea that um, that hugs are for uh for kind of to hide your face or for, for something surreptitious, because uh, in this case it really is, isn't it? They, uh, they go in for a hug, and uh, it's, uh, it's a sneaky little thing to, to get the, the tracker inside there.
0: But the Doctor is also in a pressure suit, so if the El Krat ship is destroyed, the Doctor will still be out there, in his,
1: safe in his pressure suit, floating through the sky. Yeah, um, which is what happens then, because a, a fierce battle ensues between the, the space pirates and the bat Krat. The Battlecrat ship is destroyed, um, and the space pirates just just take off, don't they, really? They don't sort of hang around. Um, They just disappear at that point. Um, And the Doctor's left floating in a a sea of diamonds because it's the only thing left. Uh, The ship's totally disintegrated. The Battlecrat themselves have just dispersed, um, and he's just surrounded by diamonds floating there, isn't he, until... um, Bill and uh, the pilot from, from the space station can, uh, can go and pick him up and bring him back.
0: Right, so there's a lot going on in those last couple of chapters. All these different plot threads and all these different traitors are being dealt with one by one by one, in very rapid succession.
1: Yeah, um, and uh, I think at the, at the end of it he reveals to, uh, to Bill that he has picked up a diamond as well. <laughs> so he did get and what he came is- for all along.
0: And this, of course, brings us to the last line of the book. In time, there would be a new ring around the planet she called home. That's Laura Palmer talking about Saturn. Yeah. In time, there would be a new ring around the planet she called home, a diamond ring.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's nice.
0: So Bill makes off with a bunch of diamonds to enrich her life on Earth. Of course, at this point, Mike Tucker didn't know what her character had in store for the end of the season.
1: No, so I those think, diamonds
0: really never go anywhere.
1: They, I thought, did they not just end up with one diamond? The one that the doctor um, had kind of plucked out of um, space when he was waiting there?
0: I'm trying to look through my e-copy of the book. I believe he gives her a small handful, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, but given how the season ends, Bill's not really in a position to make use of those diamonds.
1: So No, they're it. Yeah, they're probably just in a box somewhere... Uh, a shoebox with the photos of a on, maybe. Yeah.
0: And so, as I yeah. flip through my uh, notes on my Kindle copy of the book, let's see, there's another reference to Caves of Androzani. another one of those soft continuity references that you have to assume is going to go over the head of about 80% of the audience. Yeah. Some character says, what do you think? Can you, meet, can you see me cutting down trees on Andrazani Major?
1: Yeah. Um, which is, uh, it's also a link to The Doctor, The Widow, and The Wardrobe, isn't it? Because um, the, uh, the characters that turn up in that are, um, are cutting down the trees. And on Andrew that's right. Yeah. Um, and the, the other reference I picked up, uh, and this is towards the end, when, uh, when Rince is kind of basically weighing up his options, uh, he either spends his life on the run, or it says that um, he might have to go to a prison planet like Varos. Uh, which is obviously <laughs> from, uh, from Vengeance of Varos.
0: That's right, where he winds up on one of their video nasties.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, yeah going to potentially die in a reality TV show in, uh, in a particularly nasty way.
0: And, of course, there's a Star Trek reference uh, stuck in there as well. The doctor tells Palmer, As a wise man once said, it's life, Jim, but not as we know it.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah, I remember that now, yeah. It's, uh,
0: <laughs> and of course, Ringbearer, which was uh, Rince's code name when he was communicating with the diamonds. That's obviously a reference to
1: some other long-running fantasy uh, novel. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. That's the uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. I wondered about that. I wonder if there was some other significance. I didn't know what Rince was. Um, it's not from Tolkien, as far as I know. Uh, uh, no, Ring so Bear, Rince, not, uh, uh, Raptor.
0: And Raptor, and. Raptor could be any number of things. I think yeah. Jurassic Park, but
1: it's yeah. a pretty
0: common one. Nettleman and Rince, I think those two characters, number one, they kind of have Dickensian names. You can imagine uh, Dickens' novel with a couple of bad guys called Nettleman and Rince.
1: Yeah, definitely. But more yeah.
0: importantly, I think they're a Robert Holmes double act. Yeah, Bad guys who are always talking to one another.
1: Yeah, because Nettleman's very kind of... Uh, well, when there's no danger around, he's very strident, isn't he? And he's he's kind of demanding. Uh, and Rince is like this kind of uh, kind of creepy little sidekick who's egging him on and uh, you know kind of uh, you know encouraging him to, uh, to, to to kind of bully and cajole the uh, the miners. Yeah. But
0: in the end, Nettleman is an empty bully, and Rince has a little bit of heroism as he engineers this uh, financial scheme to get out of trouble.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, presumably, yeah, they, they, they do both end up on Varos or somewhere, yeah. And uh,
0: we'll fast forward to classic series uh, season twenty-two to find out how that turns out
1: for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes uh, I wonder how what happened to Varus in the Time War. Uh, presumably, it was it was of some strategic importance with it being one of the uh, the few. Places where you can get Zyton Seven for Tardises. Uh, you know whether that was uh, whether it was taken out by the Daleks or something like that.
0: It was mentioned in this book, so maybe it's been restored.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe. maybe
0: finish. We'll do a whole spin-off series about Life on Varus.
1: Yeah, I quite like *Vengeance on Varus. I, I um, got some interesting ideas, hasn't it, about the the sort of political structure and uh, uh, you know, with the with the governor. Um, and how uh, he's subjected to the public vote. Um and, and how they kind of pick his, his successor and everything. It's uh I'd say it's my favorite six doctor story. And I could think of
0: some very handy uses of that voting feedback system right now in our yeah. current political
1: climate. <laughs> yeah, What did you
0: say happened to Theresa May the last time she tried to call for a vote?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know it's um I can't believe she's still there. It's but then, like the uh, governor,
0: she has a lot of staying
1: power. She does, she does. Like the I, vengeance on I think part of the problem is that the alternatives aren't great either. Um, which, um, no. which I guess is a problem with, with Trump as well, isn't it? With, with Mike Pence uh, waiting in the wings.
0: Yeah, he's a whole other different set of uh, political issues. that uh, I won't hijack your blog about it, but he would not be a substantial improvement, put it that way.
1: No, no. Great. So, uh, so what do you think of the book overall?
0: Um, I mean, for me, I've been reading the new series adventures on and off um, for the last seven or eight years. I used to do the reviews for Enlightenment, which is the Canadian fanzine. Once that fanzine stopped publishing, I kind of stopped reading the book. So I lost touch about two or three years ago. Yeah. This is actually the first new series adventure that I've read, um, probably out of the last nine or ten So it was a good way to get back into the series, because you have a very traditional story that has a lot of callbacks to some uh, really good or some memorable, if not necessarily good, Pertwee and Tom Baker stories. Yeah. You've got a very fast plot. There are lots of twists and turns. There's a lot of double-dealing characters, so you never know who to trust. You've got some really good visual images. Uh, I mean, it's not a great work of art. It's not one of the all-time great books, but it's definitely a fun read and it keeps you guessing.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, like you say, it's not. Uh, I don't think it's going to be one that maybe stays in the memory that long. Um, but definitely enjoyable read, um, and enough stuff to keep you guessing. You know, the, there's two saboteurs and things like that. So you kind of reading it with, uh, you know, kind of trying to think about who who's going to be behind uh, some of the stuff on there. Uh, no, it was uh, yeah, definitely, definitely well worth a read.
0: And for me, it's hard to go wrong when you model your adventure after Ambassadors of Death, which is one of my top twenty stories. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed following that part of it too. Yeah, I
1: hadn't, uh, I hadn't spotted that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I love series seven myself. It's uh, uh, season seven, so yeah, definitely one of my favourites. Yeah, some great stuff in there. Um, and stuff that, um, that is revisited quite a bit, isn't it? When you think um, uh, you'd spearhead from space, you know, the Autons have come back quite a few times in the new series. Um, there was the Silurians have come back from Doctor and the Silurians. Ambassadors of Death, that, that kind of spacesuit imagery you've seen with the, um, the impossible astronaut. Um, right. And... Uh, the uh, the uh, Inferno? You know, you've seen that sort of um, the uh, parallel universe thing come back in the new series as well. Uh, it's uh, it's quite a, a kind of a rich, fertile area for for, uh, for reusing ideas from, isn't it?
0: It's a great jumping-off point, and then of course you have uh, U- Unit, which really comes to the forefront in season seven. And Unit has been a very big recurring theme throughout yeah. the new series,
1: especially the Stephen Moffat years. Yeah, they've... Um, yeah, it came back in Rusty Davies theory, You didn't really have a, a consistent unit cast, did you? Or a unit family like they had. Whereas with the introduction, uh, introduction of Kate Stewart and Osgood, um, well, I mean, just those two, really. But it's nice to have familiar faces when they do revisit unit. Um, I'd love to get... I'd love them to get um, Lee Evans back um, as... Uh, I've forgotten the character's name from the Planet of the Dead. Uh, guess,
0: the um, uh, right, the, the, uh, the the technical sergeant. I'm forgetting the character's name, yeah,
1: too. Yeah, the scientific guy. I mean, I guess he's been replaced by um, by Osgood to some extent, but uh, I quite enjoyed his character.
0: And um, I'm still waiting for a series of adventures about the immortal Cyberman Brigadier who's now flying through the cosmos, keeping Earth safe.
1: Yeah, he's, uh, he's one of those characters, isn't he? Like... Um, uh, again, Planet of the Dead, the, um, oh, I can't remember I remember names, uh, the lady that took the flying bus at the end, um, Lady, Lady something, yeah, I can't remember the character's name, but again, you know, she's, she's off flying around in a bus, the cyber brigadier's flying around, uh, the doctor's daughter, Jenny, is, uh, flying around somewhere, there's, uh. There's a lot of potential for all these, uh, and, and there's the ghost as well. A lot of potential for these characters, isn't there, to, to, to pop up again.
0: There's a lot of big Finnish offs waiting to take our money.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if you've, uh, if you've seen any of the, uh, the new Titan comic, um, it's kind of special run at the moment. Um, it's the, the Lost Dimension. Um, the, that's got Jenny in it, uh. So, uh, yeah, it is. and um, I think Peter Davison said on Twitter that there's going to be a big finish, maybe box set with her as well. I don't think it's been officially announced, but uh, but Peter Davison's mentioned it. So, uh, yeah, it um, seems like she's been missing for a long time and uh, he's, he's kind of coming back in a big way now.
0: I did not know that about the comics, but I will have to pick that up today.
1: Yeah, I might, I might edit that out, actually. That's a bit of a spoiler, so... <laughs> Well. <laughs> <laughs> I might, might take that line out I mean it's in the first issue which, is, which has been out a little while now so uh, uh, yeah we'll see about that cool uh, well thank you very much for joining me it's been a, been a pleasure talking to you about this book this was a lot of fun we'd love to come back and do it again sometime <laughs> yeah definitely uh, and uh, so we, we can find you on Twitter as at Doctor Who Novels uh, uh, DR Who Novels uh, so, uh, rather than Doctor and your blog is doctorwhonovels.wordpress.com.
0: That's right. The blog has evolved a bit over the years. At the moment, I'm doing the target novelizations in publication order. So I'm working on the end of Planet of the Spiders. And then I believe I move on to The Lost Nest Monster, which is the novelization of Terror of the Zygons immediately ah, afterwards.
1: Yeah, yeah they, they do jump about a bit, don't they, the target novels, as, uh, <laughs> if you read them in, uh, in publication order.
0: Right, they were sort of published catch as catch can, so you never know what's going to come next, although you had an interesting series of books, because you have The Green Death, which is Joe's final story, and the next book after that is Planet of the Spiders, where in the novelization there's actually a Joe Grant cameo in the beginning, yeah. handing off the blue crystal.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: So sometimes there was an inadvertent aim to the way the books came out in random order.
1: Yeah. I remember I, it was one of the, as with most of them, or a lot of them, um, I read a lot of the Target books before I'd seen the stories, um, so i very disappointed when I watch Planet of the Spiders that um, Joe Grant doesn't appear in it, because uh, uh, the, uh, they just get the, the, the crystal, don't they, Metabilis crystal with the note in the story, whereas the, um, the book has uh, a scene with her in, in the Amazon, is it? Where in the Amazon, there?
0: with yeah. Professor Cliff
1: Jones. yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was, uh, I remember that being a, uh, one, of the, one of the disappointing um, kind of aspects of that where the, the s- story doesn't actually live up to the book.
0: That's just part of the genius of Terence Dix, which I talk about at length on my blog, Doctor Who Novels at wordpress.com.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely uh, definitely check that out um, if, you, if you haven't seen that blog. And I'll put links in the, in the show notes to that as well. Appreciate it very much. That's great. i thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you to Denise for the beautiful reading as part of this book. And uh, thanks for listening at home. Uh, we'll see you again on the Trap One podcast. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>